You guys all doing good? Warm? If you're not warm, snuggle up next to somebody, and uh, we'll have a good time in God's Word today. So today, you can open up your Bible to Mark chapter 3, and I would encourage you each week to bring the Bible, whether that's a physical one. I tend to like, you know, a big Bible, you know, leather bound, good, it just, it's nice. But if you have it on your device, uh, on our worship guide, you can find today's text, uh, a great Bible app to download if you want a Bible on your phone is Uversion. Uh, there's many others, but that's where our worship guide will connect you to. So you can open it up to Mark chapter 3. And let me just say this again. If you need a Bible, you want to take one home with you and read it and enjoy it through the week, we have Bibles over at our welcome table. We'd love to just give you one. So um, because, you know, I'm thankful for the steadfastness of God's word. Amen? You know, it says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And each week we come here to open God's word because we believe that God's word has power and authority to transform our lives. So we come with this great expectation each week knowing that all that's around us that is changing, the word of God never changes. And, you know, in this particular season, there's quite a bit of changes, isn't there? We've been experiencing a lot of it. But each week, we believe that God's authority and his power through his word can change us, you know, to transform us. And, and so hopefully you're coming each week um, expectant for God to work in that way. And so let's look today at Mark chapter 3 beginning at verse 1, I'll read our text that we'll start with this morning. It says, Again he entered the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would open up our hearts and minds today. We want to behold wondrous things from your word. God, we ask that you would use your word today like a hammer that would break up any hardness in our hearts. Lord, you'd use your word like a like a scalpel to cut away any callousness. Lord, would you use your word like a healing balm, Lord, to be put upon any places where there might be wounds, uh, where we might need healing. God, we thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful. And so use it today, however you see fit, Lord, to transform your people by your love and grace. Uh, we feel the little drops of rain coming on our head right now, Lord Jesus. Hold it back. <laughs> In your name, amen. Amen. Wow. Okay, Lord, here we go. Might, might put away my Bible, actually. <laughs> Don't want that getting wet. All right. So, Jesus has been now confronted by the religious leaders with a lot of questions. You know, he healed a paralytic man that was lowered through the roof, and they questioned in their hearts, who is this guy that's saying that he could forgive sins? And Jesus responds by saying, I came to earth, and I have authority on the earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus goes to this house, and he's reclining at a table with sinners and tax collectors. Wow. We might... At some point, if it starts coming down, we might all make a quick run inside. Is everyone okay with that, if that needs to happen? So be prepared, okay? Might happen. Let's keep going for like a couple more seconds, all right? I don't know. 
Yeah, we might want to cover the instruments. I'm going to put my jacket on these speakers. All right. Well, all right. Who says go inside? Raise your hand. Okay, who says stay outside? Raise your hand. Stay outside. Okay, a couple, couple of us staying outside. All right. Let's keep going. I think it might pass. Nine minutes. All right. I'm going to put this guy away. All right. Yeah, that speaker should get covered up. Give us one second just to cover things up. Perfect. So sacrificial, Lindsay. Look at that. All right. Perfect. Here we go. All right, little excitement. That's right, Bill. Okay. So, as I was saying, you know that Jesus was with the Pharisees. We know that he was with sinners and tax collectors eating with them, and they said, why is he eating with these people? And Jesus, I remind you, said that he came as a physician for the sick and not for those who are well. And then, last week, we saw as Pastor Rob taught that the disciples were plucking heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying, why do your disciples not fast like we're fasting? And why are they plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath? Because in their minds, they thought that the disciples were breaking God's law. And so we have all these situations where Jesus is being confronted by the religious leaders and they're, <laughs> and they're uh, we're rocking it. Dude, thanks for the encouragement, brother. Here we go. And so Jesus was a preacher, right? He was a preacher that came to proclaim the kingdom of God. And not only as a preacher, but he demonstrated the kingdom of God. And when he did this, it was, it was like flying in the face of the religious systems. They were like, who is this guy? And why is he challenging us in this way? But Jesus enters the synagogue again, which is where the religious leaders, you know, kind of hung out. And it says that um, he went there and there was a man with a withered hand. And now the synagogue, it was supposed to be a place where the people of God could come and hear the word of God and that they could worship and pray to God. And that's what we do when we come here. We come to this place believing that every time we gather, Jesus is here with his power and with his authority. But at that time, when you went to synagogue, like it was lacking. There were these religious forms and functions that emptied the people of any sense that God was among them. And when we gather, believing that Jesus is on the throne, that he has authority and power, we come into the church of God expecting that he's going to meet us here, that Jesus has authority and power. Because guys, if we come here on Sundays and we miss that fact that Jesus has authority and power, we're pretty much missing out on church. You know, I kind of think of it like this. If we come to church expecting little of Jesus— we're probably gonna get little. But if we come to church expecting much from Jesus, we're gonna get a lot. You know, the church is a place where God's manifest presence shows up, 
where we come and God works and we move and he moves and we're like, you know, things go down. Things happen when Jesus is in his church. So we don't want to as a church, especially as this new church that has been planted, we want to plant on such a foundation that is on Jesus's power and authority. We don't want to create rigid forms and functions of religion. We want to create real and authentic relation that, that first begins with our relationship with Jesus, but then also is relational among one another. I don't want to see this church ever become a place where we just kind of sit and it's like, hmm ha, you know? But that we come expecting that every time God is going to move. And so Jesus enters the synagogue, and look, I think that Jesus went into the synagogue prepared. You know, I said a couple weeks ago that Jesus was always aware of his surroundings. And when Jesus came to the synagogue, he came with the right motives. You know, he came with the right heart. He came being aware of the needs of other people that were around him so that Jesus could meet those needs. And that's how you and I ought to come to church, where we come to church obviously for ourselves to connect to God, but we also need to come to church with an expectation that we are gonna be able to meet the needs of other people around us. You know, that's why we wear name tags, so that we can pray for people by name, that we can encourage people by name because we want to be known by one another. And so Jesus entered the synagogue prepared in this kind of way, and the religious leaders knew that this is how Jesus was going to come in. They knew that he was going to care for the people that were around him, and so they set in the midst of the synagogue this man that had a withered hand, knowing, you know, that Jesus wasn't going to go up and be talking to the priests. He was going to see the man with the withered hand, and he was going to go to that man, and he was going to meet his need. He would be drawn to the person who was the neediest among them. And so they kind of framed Jesus in this situation. They put the man with the withered hand. And, and, you know, Luke's gospel tells us that it was the man's right hand that was withered that it was shriveled up, that it was paralyzed, basically meaning that it wasn't functioning. You know, he couldn't greet somebody with a shake of a hand. He couldn't use his hands as a skilled worker. And in this society, that pretty much meant that you're kind of cast off, cut off from society. And so verse two, it says, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And as I said, the religious leaders, they're, they're pretty much over Jesus. They want him out of the picture, out of their business. They're trying to trap Jesus in breaking some sort of Sabbath law, and they want to accuse him. But Jesus has already stated, right, last week we saw this, Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. If there's anybody who understood Sabbath law, you know, even better than these Pharisees, it was Jesus. Jesus is the one who created the Sabbath, which is a day of rest that God commanded for his people to have and to enjoy. See, but the Pharisees, what they did with the Sabbath law is they added to the law all sorts of stipulations that God never intended for the Sabbath laws to have. And basically what it ended up making the law become was unbearable and really just missing the point. And listen, I think that's pretty characteristic of what religion really does, is it becomes unbearable, and it really just misses the whole point. 
You know, Jesus calls us into something so much more than dead religion. Religion always ends in dead and really just boring hypocrisy. You know, as what Rob said last week, Jesus invites us into something so much better. He invites us into a joyful living faith, not dead religion. And so Jesus, he knew what the religious Pharisees were trying to do. He knew that they were trying to trap him. And again, he's going to confront their ways and expose them. Verse 3, look down in your Bibles, it says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. You got to kind of picture this, almost like a movie playing in your mind. You know, Jesus is actually in a gathering somewhat like this, but probably indoors, probably not as cold. Uh, But he's in a gathering at the synagogue, and the Pharisees are questioning him, and they're all watching to see what he's going to do. And he calls this man with the withered hand and says, come up here and stand next to me. And the man gets up, and he stands next to Jesus. And, And he begins to ask these Pharisees this question. He begins to ask them to really just show them what the law was all about. Because what the Pharisees had done was they added all sorts of stipulations to God's law on the Sabbath. For instance, according to rabbinic tradition, it was said that you could keep an injury from getting worse, but you couldn't make it better. So for example, if you got a cut, you could stop the bleeding but you couldn't put on a bandage or any ointment. Or if you broke an arm, you could splint it, but you couldn't reset it. You know, you had to kind of have your arm dangling there until Sabbath was over in the evening, and then you could reset your arm. You couldn't do any work according to their traditions that would uh, apply. And isn't this just quite ridiculous? You know, Jesus asked this question in order to expose the meaningless points of their, of their laws and to show them the true purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus is essentially saying this, I want to do good on the Sabbath and you want to do harm. I want to save life on the Sabbath and you want to kill me. And the answer is really obvious to this question. He asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But what's even more obvious in this story is the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts. It says in verse 5 that they were silent. He asked them this question and they were in this silence because here's the thing. I think they knew that Jesus was right. They knew that Jesus was right, but they were unwilling to admit it. And I believe that every single day, people remain in silence about Jesus because they know that he is right, but they want to remain in that dead place of religion. They want to remain in their pride and their shame. And so Jesus hears that silence. In verse 5, it says, he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. You know, you got to kind of picture that in your mind. Jesus just looking at this crowd angry. Now, 
There's only a few times in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus was angry. And it was always reserved for the people that were hardened by dead religion. See, I don't know if in your Christian life, whether you oftentimes get a mental picture of Jesus. You know, maybe as you're praying, you kind of have a picture of God, maybe his face and his demeanor. And you know, I just want to say this, that if in your mental picture of God or of Jesus, you see anger, it's not how it should be. You know, maybe the reason why you picture an angry God is because you might be steeped in religion. But when we think about Jesus, and the way that the Gospels portray him is that he was kind, he was happy, he was smiling upon people, even those who were sinners. Think back to as he reclined at the table with the sinners, he was laughing and smiling with them. So I don't know how you picture Jesus, but I hope that you picture him as one who loves you and is smiling upon you because God is merciful. Now, does God have anger? Does God get angry? Yes, he does. The Bible says that. But it was the silence of those that were hardened by religion that made Jesus angry. Because these people had every opportunity to admit that Jesus was right. And they had every opportunity to say, you know what, Jesus? We have actually been getting this whole thing about Sabbath wrong. We need to confess to you that, that we missed this whole point. But instead, they remained in silence. And notice the anger of Jesus, that it led him to grieving. You know, when we think of the anger of Jesus, it's a perfect anger. You know, it's an anger that is without sin. You know, be angry and do not sin. How many of us are pretty good at that? <laughs> yeah, not very great. You know, you and I get angry, and often our anger leads to sin. But the anger of Jesus has often been called a righteous anger. You know, it walks this fine line of God's perfect holiness. And see, the Pharisees were also angry, but their anger came up from this well of deep bitterness and hatred towards Jesus. So there are two very different kinds of anger. You know, the anger that Jesus was having was this righteous anger that led to grieving, and the anger that the Pharisees were having was a, was a deadly anger that was welling up from bitter pride within them, ultimately resulting in them wanting to kill Jesus. Those are two very different kinds of anger. So God, yes, the Bible does declare that he is angry at times, but it's an anger that leads to grief because God in his anger is desiring that we would come to repentance. It's his kindness that actually leads us to repentance. It's his smiling face that we imagine that reminds us, says, you know what? This anger, if that might be a particular sin, is going nowhere. I need to turn to Jesus and repent of that sin. And then it says that in their silence, they had hard hearts. Now, the idea of a hard heart is that your heart is calloused. You know how calluses happen, right? Kind of repeated use and they form. And this hardness that builds up around our hearts can happen in a lot of ways. You know, hardness can form around your heart by improperly dealing with wounds. 
hardness can build around our hearts when we continue in habitual sin and we resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is a real great way to cause hardness in your heart. Hardness builds around your heart by continual religious ritual without any real relationship. You just go through the motions without any real connection to Jesus, and that creates hardness in your heart. And the hardness of heart can only be softened in these ways. Hardness of heart needs to come before Jesus to be healed. When we yield in our spirits to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we confess and repent sin, when we give up dead forms of religion, when we stop going through the motions of Christianity and we really connect to Jesus in a real relationship, You know, I personally don't ever want to grieve the Lord because of a hard heart. And I've had a hard heart at many times in my Christian life. I know what it's like, you guys, to come to a place of worship and just go through the motions and to miss what God is wanting to do, not realizing that his power and authority is available every time I gather with God's people. You know, you could read the Bible as the scribes did, You can practice all the outward forms of of religion like the Pharisees did. You can go through the motions week after week, and yet Jesus might be grieved because of our hard hearts. So we ask God by his word to break up, and I prayed like a hammer to break up the stony ground, like a knife to cut away at the callus. Like he's a good physician, and he'll get in there, and he'll cut away the callous places of your heart if you let him. In verse 5, it says, as a way for Jesus to, uh, verse 5 says that, you know, as he's, has this man now standing up there with him. You guys all good? Everyone rocking? Feeling good? Warming up? No, everyone's like, okay. We got a little bit more. And um, Jesus asked this guy to come up. He said, come here. And he's standing next to him. And this whole time, the man's standing there. And then he says to the man, Stretch out your hand. And it says, he stretched it out and his hand was restored. What I love is the only work that Jesus did in this moment was telling the man to stretch out his hands. And miraculously before their eyes, this man's, you know, pulled in, withered hand just began to kind of extend. He stretched it and bones and ligaments and muscles and everything that makes up your hand was fully restored. It says in Matthew's gospel that his right hand became as well as his left hand, that everything became perfectly healed. Now, as I think about this, if I could just make a quick point of application. When Jesus told this man to stretch out his hand, Was the man speaking to his left hand, to the good one? You know, a lot of times we think this. We think that when Jesus speaks into our lives, he only speaks to the things that are functional. Like he can only kind of talk about the things that are working in our lives. But we need to understand that when Jesus speaks, he's able to address the things in our lives that are dysfunctional the things that are not working. He wasn't talking to the man about his working left, and the man didn't say, well, you know, Jesus, I do have a good left hand. (laughs) Jesus said, you have a right hand that's withered away, and I want to restore it. Stretch out your hand. 
you know, the man didn't object. He didn't say, well, Jesus, you know, this hand is pretty withered and it's been withered for a long time. Sure you can do that? But the man really participates with Jesus in this moment. What I mean by this, participating with Jesus in this miracle, you know, Jesus is the one that ultimately performed the miracle. But here's a really great thing that I want you to understand about the miracles of Jesus. Oftentimes in the miracles of Jesus, Jesus asks us to participate with him, to do everything possible that we can do in the situation, and then he does what only he can do. Let me give you an example. The first miracle of Jesus, when he turned water into wine, Jesus is the only one who can make the water wine. But what he told first was he told the servants to go and fill up the jugs with water. They could do that. The servants could go and they could gather up the water and set it before Jesus. They could do all of that part. They could do the possible, but it was only Jesus who could do the impossible. Only he could do the miraculous of turning water into wine, and Jesus did that. And so here, the man with the withered hand, he did everything that he could possibly do in the situation. He stood up, he came forward, he stood next to Jesus as Jesus dismissed religion, And when Jesus spoke to him and said, stretch out your hand, I believe the man had to give at least some kind of effort of extending his hand out. And then Jesus did the impossible, which was to make bones and ligaments and muscles extend and to be completely healed. And and it's just incredible. It's incredible to think that we get to participate with God in the impossible, in the miraculous, by doing everything that we can possibly do to come in line with his will. And so, listen, friends, give to Jesus everything in your life, the things that are functional, but also the things that are dysfunctional. And Jesus could do amazing things in them. Now let's look at verse six. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy him. So even after witnessing this miracle, they were still missing it. And it says that they went and they turned to another empty system. They turned to the Herodians. And the Herodians were uh, Jewish people that were political. They had become sympathetic with Rome and they supported Rome. And the Pharisees and the Herodians were historical enemies. They hated each other. But when the Pharisees realized that they couldn't trap Jesus by their religious law, they turned to the Herodians to see if they might be able to trap Jesus by political law. And let me just tell you, if there's two things to this day that have no, um, that really just go counter to the kingdom of God, and can't either represent Jesus or destroy Jesus, it's religion and politics. Religion can't contain Jesus. Politics can't contain Jesus. The kingdom of God is so much more beyond those things. And so verse 7 and 8, it says, Jesus withdrew to his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So Jesus says, let's go, guys. We're going to the beach. I love that about Jesus. Just like, come on. We're going surfing. 
Let's go to the beach, guys. Not Maybe not surfing, but you know, let's go. We're gonna go. We're gonna get away from this religious system. We're gonna get away from these things. We're gonna go to the beach. And it says, crowds swarmed about him. You know, Mark notes the different places where they came from, which is basically to say this. They came from the north, the south, the east, and the west. They came from every single direction to be with Jesus. There were thousands, even tens of thousands people that were gathering around Jesus. And it says this, he had to have a getaway boat because the crowds were so big as they swarmed in around him. And so Jesus is sorting through all the people that are coming to him. He's dealing with the religious as they come to him. He's dealing with the spectators as they come to him. He's dealing with the sick and wounded. And it says there in verses 9 through 12 um, that he even dealt with those that were oppressed by demons. Look at what it says in verse 9 through 12. It says, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Have a getaway boat, guys, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed about him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. I'm just going to briefly comment on this part and then we're going to wrap it up because it's cold. Which is this. Why didn't the, why didn't Jesus let the demons call out, you know, his identity. You know, the reason why is we're going to see in a moment, Jesus was going to appoint 12 apostles that would be his representatives. You know, Jesus wasn't going to allow religion to represent him. Jesus wasn't going to allow politics to represent him. Jesus wasn't going to allow crowds, fanatical fanfare to represent him. He wouldn't allow any of these empty and broken. He wouldn't let the demons cry out about who he was because he wanted his followers to declare who he is. And so Jesus, it says in verse 13, goes up on a mountain and calls those whom he desires for they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him, that he might send them out and have authority to cast out demons. I was telling our leadership this morning that this end of this message, which I'm going to end it here, I promise, right now. It's cold, I know. It feels like this end of the message is almost could be an entirely different message. It's amazing, but I'm not going to preach a whole different message right now. But I want you guys to have this attentive focus as we end right now to think about what Jesus was doing in this moment. You know, if I slowed it down and I preached this, we'd be in Mark for two years, right? I want to be in Mark for one year, so we're going at a little bit faster of a pace. That's why we're covering a lot of text today. But here's what I want you to see, guys. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He goes to this desolate place, and he calls, look what it says, called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. I mean, if this isn't as much of a clear picture of what it means to to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. You know, track with me. Jesus went up on this mountain and significant things take place on mountains in the Bible. And here is going to be one of the most significant moments for these men's lives is that he's not going to choose his leadership to turn the whole world upside down as it says in Acts. He wasn't going to choose these trained religious people. He wasn't going to use politicians. 
He wasn't going to use these wavering fanatics just wanting a healing from Jesus. He was going to use followers. He was going to use apostles, sent ones, ambassadors, whom he chose. And look at the details of what it gives it. It says that Jesus called these people. There has to be the aspect in our Christianity that we have been called by Jesus. No one can make you a Christian other than Jesus calling you. So Jesus called them, and look, it has the element that he called people to himself to be with him, to be in relationship, to have intimacy with God. And then there's the element that he desires these people. I mean, it's one thing to be called by Jesus and to be called by him. You know, when we talk about God loving us, but do you realize that God not only loves you, but he likes you? He wants to be with you. He desires you. He wants a relationship with you. So they were called. They were called to him, and they were called because he desired them. And then the last thing is that they came to him. They had to come. They had to respond to Jesus, and they had to come. And as they came, it says that he sent them out to preach, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to be authoritative representatives of Jesus. And these were the men. Verse 16, he appointed 12, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, whom he gave the name uh, Bonerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, whom he betrayed. In coming weeks, we'll talk more about who these guys are and how they transform the world. But as we close now in prayer, let me just pray. And then I want to give an invitation into real relationship with Jesus. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your people who came expectant today, this morning. Even looking at the weather reports and said, I want to go to church because I believe that at church, I'm going to hear the word of God. I'm going to come in contact with the power and authority of Jesus. I'm going to be stirred up in my spirit, maybe even convicted The word might break up some hard places. Thank you, Lord, that today people have come because they want to respond to you, Jesus. You call and we answer. So, Lord, we come to you today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, as as we were listening to the word of God today and being stirred up by what he's spoken to us, we don't want to be like the Pharisees where we just sit in silence. We're gonna worship now. We're gonna lift our voices in praise to God because he's worthy of it, amen? But I wanna encourage anyone here today. You know, if, if today, maybe perhaps you want to receive Jesus, you've, you've sensed that he has called you, that he loves you, that he desires you, but you have not come to him. And today you've heard his word and you've heard his call and you're saying, I want to come to Jesus. I want to have a real relationship with him. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to participate in the impossible with God. You have to participate in the miraculous. And the miraculous, the biggest miracle that could ever happen is for you to have your life transformed to go from dead to life. 
to go from sinner to saved, to become a redeemed child of God. You have to participate in that. You have to respond to the call of God. God has authority and power. He is sovereign. He loves you. He calls you. But you have to respond to that call. And today I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And just like the man with the withered hand was told by Jesus to stand up and to come to him and to stretch out that withered hand, and he stretched it out and it was restored. How simple would it be for you today to respond to what the Spirit of God is speaking to you, to take your hand and to stretch it out into the sky and say, Jesus, I want to have a real relationship with you. I want to bring the real me to the real Jesus. And so in this moment, we don't have to close our eyes. We don't have to do any weird forms of funky religion. We don't have to have music playing behind me. We can just have a simple, honest-to-God realization, I need Jesus and if you, you say that, I need Jesus, just raise that hand over your head, and I'll know to pray for you. I see you right over there, those two. Praise the Lord. Amen. See you back there. See you. Amen. Yes. Amen. Amen. Now, just with our hands stretched, if, 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 if this is to receive Jesus for the first time, certainly raise your hand over your head. If this is also to say, I want hardness of heart to be broken up, I want the callous places to be mended. You can also raise your hand and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we not only offer to you the things in our lives that are functioning, but the things in our lives that are dysfunctional. And Lord, we know that we have sinned against the God of heaven, but we thank you, Jesus, that you came and you died on a cross and you rose from the dead three days later so that we could have newness of life in you. For those who raise their hand to receive you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior and friend, I pray right now, Jesus, smile upon them. Show them your mercy and your love. Transform them today from life to, from death to life. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.